gave him permission to speak. Like, I I thought, like, the internet had agreed that Matt Iglesias' speaking privileges were revoked. Well, I mean, it's like, this is why cancel culture doesn't work. You just cannot cancel Matt Iglesias. <laughs> Even though he <sighs> should be canceled. <laughs> He's, mm, yeah, this is, like, even better than the fucking Landlord one. That's all, like, yes, let's, like, turn Landlords into fucking AT&T and Comcast. There's no way that could go horribly wrong. Now, he actually managed to do one better. Um, in, granted, this isn't that recent, but in a piece in Bloomberg where he argues with the headline... What Democrats need? More short-term thinking. God. His whole thing is basically the Democrats should settle for, you know, a few, you know, fully funded things rather than, like, you know, everything in the omnibus. Um, you know, so that some some fucking hick whose daughter runs like Merck, you know, <laughs> so that we keep him happy. I don't know. I, I I'd imagine that actual yeah. hicks would be offended <laughs> to be like grouped in with Joe Manchin. Want to be hick, like. His thing is, yeah, he wants. Oh yeah, uh, he wants to be seen as one when you know it's politically convenient to him, and you know he wants to be seen as like fighting for West Virginia against the depredations of Washington, and it's like, well, yeah, it's to zero in particularly on what's going on with Maddie that's really getting her back up more than mm -hmm. his usual stupid bullshit because you know there's lots of really fucking stupid bullshit in the opinion columns and everywhere else and we only have time for so much stupid bullshit so this is kind of the thing that jumped out to us uh, and this is by the way back on October 3rd when this kind of statement still would sound kind of stupid. That said, in their zeal to avoid the perceived mistakes of former President Barack Obama's 2009 stimulus, Democrats made some new mistakes this time around. They pushed a lot of money out to consumers very quickly, and consumers continued the pandemic year pattern of buying more goods and fewer services. That has led to snarled ports and inflation. And I'm going to run that through the bot. My god. He wants... That, no. That's not... No. Matt. Listen. Listen very, very carefully. Shut the fuck up. Yes. You... Are a child 
who has wandered into the middle of a movie. You have no idea what's going on. You don't have the slightest clue what's happening with the plot. Please, just shut up. He's paid to not shut up. And whoever you are who keeps funding his substack, stop it. Stop it. By withdrawing your subscription from his substack, you can prevent the scourge of Matt Iglesias' font. Insofar as that's actually a thing. You could also, you know, throw some of that our way. By the way, we are Chop Shop Economics. Tuning in for the Chop Shop Mm -hmm. Supply Chain Special. Yeah, five bucks a month pays our server bills, gets you early access to episodes, and yeah. Also specials. Also specials. We'll be making more. So, you know, toss in a fiver. Um, you don't have to listen to Maddie anymore. It's okay. You can get all your correct opinions from us. Yep, Doc Spider. Silver. And... <laughs> and we're going to really get into today why Matt Iglesias is completely fucking wrong. And we're picking on him in particular because he's not the only yeah. one who's saying this. This has kind of been a drumbeat around the supply chain's crisis for the past yeah. couple of weeks. Like, this isn't just, like, you know, shitheads at Fox News or something. This is shithead centrists, like mm-hmm. our boy Matty. Who do not does not understand economics, does not understand, you know, shit moving from point A to point B. Because, oh boy. <laughs> What's going on with our supply chain situation, and there's other folks who have gotten into this a bit, is entirely based on how structurally fucked our distribution system is thanks to the assumption that it would be able to function in this perfect hermetically sealed vacuum where nothing would intrude upon it i've used the term frictionless flow of capital before and that's basically what they want to go back to that's and to some extent that's what we well, they kind of assumed was actually the case that, like, you know, you can't really disrupt the supply chain. It will always be this frictionless flow of capital because, you know, we understand now. We're not like those, you know, stupid dum-dums who, you know, loaded stuff on ships without containers surrounding them. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is an important part of it, but it is, you know, we're going to get into the how all of the supply chain shit is coming unglued precisely because of how it's been organized for the better part of the past, like, 40 to 50 years. And this is something that I know that 
on it could happen here they went into the supply chain crisis from a very like geopolitical perspective um looking at it in terms of like you know crushing uh the power of organized labor as well as sustaining wars in east asia and well yeah that's definitely part of it uh we're gonna get into a bit more of you know what the economics and like social aspect of that is like what this looks like and why we're at the point where now Joe Biden is considering deploying the National Guard to ease the supply chain crisis, a solution which, you know, has absolutely not worked mm-hmm. in the United Kingdom. I mean, to be fair, part of way. it was their logistics core is too small to do that. And when they decided, oh, yeah, we're going to let in the polish again so they uh, they can drive our trucks for us. They were like... You know, we're just going to give you, like, a three-month visa, and apparently also they put it under, like, this non-expedited three-week process, you know, three-week minimum process, and that's, you know, when you apply, that's when the clock starts. So... Worth mentioning, the supply chain crisis in Britain is significantly worse than the United States. The U.S. has not, at time of recording, reached the point of approximately a quarter to a third of all petrol stations no longer being able to sell people gasoline. That's... Yeah. We're not there Not for lack of trying, but, like... You know, the UK is kind of this canary in the coal mine for what's coming if this, if these sorts of crises are not resolved soonish. Exactly. So we're going to get into what this thing called just in time logistics, which everybody's become an expert in overnight, is what this does to how supply chains work why the whole thing with container ships is so important and also getting into a bit more of what's going on at the ports which by the way for anyone who has been looking at the supply chains news you've probably seen things like biden's executive order around the port of los angeles and moving its operations to a 24 7 schedule they're certainly not the only port that's backed up practically every major port on the planet right now is experiencing major delays And again, it's because of much deeper structural issues that within the confines of capitalism can't really be solved. So I... (laughs) At least not as it's currently allowed to work anyway. So, okay, what is just-in-time logistics? Well... It is this thing that is like sort of the material side of what's happening with neoliberalism in the 70s and 80s, where you could say like the fuel behind it is all the crazy ass fucking black magic bullshit going on in Wall Street and the city of London and with offshore banking. Like that's like helping generate huge piles of bullshit capital that becomes important later on for all the stupid Wall Street Raiders shit of the 80s. Um, But what is helping make that possible is uh, the uh, 
just rapid like consolidation of supply chains into this framework of just-in-time logistics, which basically says you keep the minimum amount of inventory space on hand as possible because that's real estate that costs money you could be using that for something else like production or distribution facilities so or you could just hawk it so why are you spending money on that you can reduce okay. your labor footprint by maintaining that minimal inventory and you can offer claims of convenience, which is sort of what Amazon in particular is founded on, is running on how just-in-time logistics smooths over global trade on a really unprecedented yeah. scale in human history, like in terms of volume and speed. So, like, just-in-time logistics definitely does has, you know, worked-ish from a business perspective in that it's sped everything up and has sped up how much volume can be moved quickly, it just requires yeah. everything has to work. Like, part of the reason is that in the before times, there really wasn't a good way to track, you know, to basically track a stock keeping unit from, you know, the moment of production to the moment of consumption. Like, you know, you make it and then a year later it ends up in the hands of the end user and between that is like a whole bunch of what you can systematically say is basically just i don't know i don't know because you don't have computers yet you don't have any realistic way of tracking these flows or of even making sense of them and well, like you can. It's just that it's a dizzying array of middlemen and brokerages. Yeah. And also, this is, by the way, a big part of where the insurance industry starts is largely for insuring ships. Interesting enough. Um, that's sort of where modern finance also sort of comes from is all this stuff just to guarantee like capitalists against the loss of ships at sea because that was a common yeah. thing still is to an extent in some parts of the world right um it's why that whole florida solution is just really fucking funny yeah but, um... it's like i'm more talking like the the like foundations of this idea that you can do just in time logistics like the thing that shifts it's like is, uh, like this whole story around logistics is that on a global scale is because it's both expensive it's risky um, it's difficult yeah. to track things is the end of the second world war and specifically that the united states merchant marine now has in its possession literally thousands of liberty ships that they've got nothing yeah. else to do with like other than just send them off to the wreckers yard and like when we're talking liberty ships we're basically talking these like big like freight ships and merchant men that were built to be constructed in like you know less than like two weeks just like boom 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 mass assembly line style and the whole logic of this rate of production was based on the really sort of brutal calculus of if we build these things at a higher rate than the german u-boats can sink them we will win the u-boat war so there's thousands of these things lying around that are being sold at fire sale prices yeah. 
And it's these Liberty ships that get converted into the first container ships. And it's not just because, you know, the technology and guidance systems and mapping on a global scale has improved significantly. It's also that there's just this huge surplus of fairly sturdy merchant buses oh, yeah. lying around that nobody's doing like anything Like, it's a confluence with. of factors. We finally have, we have a container ship now. So we have, like, the ability to, like, componentize cargo and track it in, like, discrete units. Like, that's that's really something that wasn't really possible. And these things, you know, occurring at more or less the same time, it allows for this idea that you could eventually have this frictionless flow of capital. That, you know, logistics can become basically just this stream that you take goods out of and present them to the consumer or to the next producer in the chain. You don't have to think about it because, like, there's this whole, you know, middleman back end that does all of that for you. And, you know, I just also want to particularly shine a light on this was made possible because of a massive government supply chains project. Yes. (laughs) This was not because the private women would like to invest in cheap ass sturdy merchant ships this is uh, the u.s federal government said we need to build enough ships at a rapid enough rate to get them past fucking u-boats to win a war in europe yeah and so you know we get this and we get this synergistic effect where you know finally they're you know, you can theoretically have this frictionless flow. It's like, and now that you have that, you can say that I can guarantee, you know, this will be produced and it will get to you in a certain amount of time. And that, you know, that changes a lot of the old logics of capital. It's not completely unrecognizable, of course. Like, at the end of the day, there is just a guy or, you know, tens of thousands of people behind getting this good from, you know, raw material production to, you know, deliver it to your house in two days uh, from the warehouse. It's just now streamlined and centralized. And, and yeah, that's the thing that's really important that happens going into the 70s and the 80s and in the 90s is as these container ships get bigger and get more sophisticated the number of ports that can actually process container ships reduces and that's when you see a lot of major like sections of waterfront like the new york waterfront the san francisco waterfront like a lot like large chunks of the Thames, like Canary Wharf, which is you know a big fancy ass gentrified as shit, like pile of like glass and condos, was originally literally a fucking wharf on the East End. This is like these were all places yeah. that end up basically completely displaced. There goes capitalism doing that again, you know. I. You know, just want to point out, like, goes back to enclosure <laughs> and slavery and just sort of seems to repeat itself ever since. 
it's you know it's basically like this it, it, you know it dovetails very nicely into like the neoliberal logic of everything must be subsumed into the market well now everything can be subsumed into the market or a lot more than you know what you could previously enclose theoretically you can enclose everything and just time logistics is one it also, part of that you know from a labor discipline standpoint is great because it does allow you to say we're shipping the jobs overseas because mm-hmm. now you can actually do that it gives you a hammer to swing against supply chain workers specifically which it has to oh, yes. ferocious effect all over the world Like you can now be fired for incompetence because you are, you just cannot keep up with being just a guy packing all those fucking boxes so that, you know, someone gets their goods, you know, in two days instead of three. Like that's. <laughs> it's. You know, it's a minor miracle of, like, logistics technology, and yet, you know, what's enabling it is, like, horrific working conditions. And, you know, it's all underpinned by this idea that, you know, the flow of MCM prime and CMC prime are now predictable. We now understand it we now have control over it this is all understood it can all be brought under the uh, market logic you know it is completely enclosed nothing can go wrong because the system will automatically heal itself well about that how did that go That is where shit really starts to break down. Is we have this system that by design cannot and is not allowed to break. That's just all there is to it. Yeah. Just in time logistics means selling off all those warehouses and turning them into overpriced yuppie lofts and nightclubs and other random shit that looks good in a real estate portfolio. It means finding ways to reduce labor as much as possible to make things as frictionless as possible. It means not having any kind of stock or cushion on hand because guess what? There's a reason importers and exporters back in the day had these enormous warehouse districts all over the place in every major fucking port and logistical hub on the planets in the history of fucking ever is because this shit is not as predictable as they make it out to be historically it really hasn't been that predictable at all So you need to have buffer. You need to have on-hand capacity to go, okay, well, we have the space to hold this thing once it shows up. And so what if the silk that showed up today is when every other fucking ship in the port showed up with a hold full of silk? I'll just salt that away and wait until the price 
ounces back up, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah. And actual like, buying low and selling high. <laughs> yeah, the whole uh, the whole reason I was like, <laughs> yeah, like part of the reason I was talking up, like, you know, the the magic behind just in time logistics is because the whole idea is that you don't need to worry about these things. And the problem is, is that we have arrogantly assumed that because we can now track some things that we understand the entirety of the logistics flow, that in fact, this is knowable, that this is, you know, that logistics is now a solved problem. All that remains is, you know, making sure these flows are as frictionless as possible and you know while also making the living and working conditions as miserable (laughs) as fucking possible and squeezing every last red cent out of every possible opportunity that you can and that means that you have an entire supply system globally speaking that depends on a very really brutally used and abused set of skilled workers like this isn't shit that is just anyone can roll off the street and uh, drive a fucking big rig or unload a ship or work on a freight train or any of that shit. This is all like very specific, very demanding skilled labor. And now we're living in a world where, Oh, guess what? A lot of them died in the last year. Like we're, we're like, I I know we kind of beat this point into the ground on this podcast, but I would like to circle back to approximately between three quarters of to a million people died in the United States from COVID so far, depending on what toll you're talking about. And according to a UCSF study on mortality rates by profession, like most of the top 10 are supply chain related. Yeah. Like, you know, we basically gutted the last mile and a bunch of the people who survived you know who were like in in these logistics flows who were you know supply chain workers they can't do those jobs anymore because shockingly enough a lot of them do involve physical labor skilled physical labor and you know that now that you have the um the lug capacity of a gnat like what what can you do like you're fucked maybe you decided to permanently off the rolls what all those fucking shitheads in hr and on social media and in bloomberg and the wall street journal and forbes and everywhere else have been saying and retrained reskilled and got a different job Oh wait, that that's happened at yeah. a record level. <laughs> Lots of people <laughs> learned to code really fucking quick. 
And they decided yeah. actually coding like, is way better than you know being a fucking independent trucker at the port of LA. Or manning a fucking container <laughs> ship. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, the restaurant kids, they all got forklift certified. And the forklift certified got into the office or, you know, took the COVID retirement voluntarily or not. And yeah, it's not surprising at all that like, yeah, of course, logistics are breaking down because at the end of the day, it's all there's just there has to be someone physically doing this stuff like container ships do not unload themselves it's it's an open problem you're it's a collection of business school magic math bullshit does not move goods from point a to point b you are not fucking scotty you cannot defy the laws of time and space by shouting math at things reality doesn't work that way i'm sorry (laughs) mainstream economists Uh, i'm sorry larry summers and actually really i'm not but (laughs) i mean yeah that's that's basically the long, long and short of it is you know we we took all of the slack out because you know, neoliberalism says we don't need it anymore. We we have the technology. We've we've solved this vexing problem of having too much crap um, floating around and not, you know, completing the because MCM clearly we've prime cycle. The problems of shortages and epidemics and famines that plagued our ancestors. Yes, totally. Mm-hmm said no one since february 2020 i mean it's like Um. no i mean it's like no we we made those problems tractable that doesn't mean we've solved them i'm not sure we'll ever completely solve them but we are definitely a lot less you definitely don't (laughs) solve them By ripping the fucking (laughs) copper out of the walls and hawking it for cocaine money. And that, by the way, has to be emphasized is that the adoption of this shit by different firms and different companies was definitely a thing. That was a combination of both. This looks good. This is going to boost our share prices. Let's go ahead with it. And some good old fashioned Wall Street Raider, Bain Capital, private equity horse shit where a bunch of rich boys on wall street roll up a whole bunch of bad debt buy up a company and then hawk the assets to pay off the bad debt and this is somehow creating value somehow totally not you know stripping major corporations for their assets and liquidating shit wholesale and that's also kind of part of what makes all this happen is these raiders going yeah fuck it we're burning this shit to the ground and doing a wholesale fire sale 
I wonder what sort of I wonder what sort of economic relation that is. Is that still money, you know, money commodities, Maybe. money prime? I mean, it's you're, you're still selling God. commodities. You're just, you know, eliminating capacity to produce commodities at scale. By the way, that's the other fun part of the system having no <laughs> slack is there's also no room to scale up. It cuts both ways. It can't handle yeah. a significant dip. And now we're not even really experiencing like a glut. It's not like we're talking traffic that's like dramatically worse than was seen before COVID. It's that the capacity to cope with that traffic just really ain't there anymore. Yeah. So, you know, we simultaneously reduced our capacity to deal with this traffic and there's more of it because of these dis- these supply chain disruptions. Because, re- oh, remember what I said about how, log- uh, how just-in-time logistics works. The idea is now that you can guarantee the timing of all these various steps. Except now you can't. And that's we're finding out that that's, and that's not possible. really important to keep Certainly in mind, not and now. that's why we've been harping on this shit since literally like the third episode of this podcast. That the big problem with just-in-time yeah. logistics is it has so thoroughly scattered production and assembly and all the different legs of the process. Which, you know, when we go, when you roll back to like, you know, you could say the peak of Mm -hmm. the industrial period leading up to like, say, the 1940s, and you look at things like the Ford uh, production facilities in Dearborn, Michigan, you were literally talking in this end goes coal and iron and rubber and glass, and out the other end comes cars like a completely integrated chain of production. And the reason this became the norm in a lot of places for manufacturing is because it eliminated a lot of those uncertainties. All you had to do was make sure raw materials show up here, we can do the rest. That just, however, also means you have to pay those workers a commensurate rate, and if they unionize, then they can put a whole lot of pressure uh, on your uh, facilities. And you also have to maintain these facilities. This isn't exactly cheap to maintain this kind of like whole like wholesale production capacity. So now what you've got, and this, by the way, is not a new thing. Back in 2011, when the uh, earthquake that preceded the Fukushima meltdown went off, the auto industry sort of had a bit of a global heart attack because the specific like the earthquakes themselves caused significant damage to key parts production factories located in japan and pretty much every auto plant everywhere went oh shit we're not going to be able to maintain production because we don't have inventory either we don't have slack capacity we don't have room to stockpile just in case shit like this happens so when when the supply yeah. chain breaks, this isn't just a question of your <laughs> Amazon package isn't going to show up on time or little Timmy's not going to get his Christmas present. It's production is 
significantly disrupted at every point in the chain. This is every aspect of how capitalism runs has just had a whole bucket of sand dumped in its gears. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I remember way back in 2012, there was, well, there was a flood in, uh, in Thailand that basically shut down um, Western digital. Like, Pretty much almost all of their hard drive manufacturing capacity gone. And when I built my computer in 2012, that year, uh, like a year after this crisis had happened, I paid $260 for a Hitachi 2 terabyte hard drive which was more than I paid for my SSD, which I paid about 130 for, a small 128 gig one. And you could not get hard drives for love or money for a long time before that. It was, it was bad. Um, like, things didn't stabilize until like 2013, 2014, and that was just like, one company shitting itself. That's and that's what we're looking at when we're talking about these supply chain situations is that this is a system which assumes everything is going exactly according to plan at every step of the way. And by the way, yes. this shit with auto parts and hard drives also applies to things like food and medicine. Mm-hmm. Like, these supply chain crises are just, you know, an aggregation of all these quote-unquote little issues. Like, in the, you know, at a certain point, these sorts of things start to take on their own sort of logic. They, they start rolling. Suddenly it's not oh, you can't get a certain type of hard drive anymore. You couldn't get 3.5-inch hard drives for a while. Um, or they were massively jacked up in price. I paid double the going rate for that drive. And it was still a bargain. <laughs> and it's like, this is the situation we face now, is... You know, these are no longer localized shortages confined to like one sector. It's like it's and hitting what's everywhere. So really, like this is something that I don't think is quite like it's really hinted at in a lot of the industry press I've read on this. But I don't think like what's been quite clearly articulated mm -hmm. is I think a big part of why this has become such a total fuster cluck is because the nature of just in time means the impacts of these shortages or these misalignments or these, you know, late deliveries and what have you 
is really impossible to predict because it's impacting every industry and every element of the supply chain in different ways. So that container that has garden gnomes bound through the Suez Canal and hard drives and board games for the latest Kickstarter is being delayed is going to be impacting, you know, three different industries that all operate on different time scales and different schedules and different assumptions. So then that's going to impact their time scales and their assumptions yeah. and their planning windows. And for some, if you're talking really long time scales, like say books, okay, you can accommodate that. But for other stuff that doesn't operate on a very long time scale, which is everything else, that's a bit of a problem. Like, and I yeah. think that isn't really something that's, I I think it's more just nobody's really sat back to go, what's the aggregate effect of this? Like a lot of stuff has been focusing on specifically things like weight supports and stuff. But if you really like zoom out a little bit and you look at the sheer scope of it, this is having the impact that it is. And it's a like, I would say almost probably on the edge of exponentially increasing impact at this point, like we're starting to hit that point in the curve where velocity is accelerating and shit just gets worse faster. Um, mm -hmm. That this really is like somebody's dumped like a whole bunch of super balls in a room and they're bouncing all over the fucking place. And who knows what the hell is going to give way next. You just know something is going to, and it's probably going to be several yeah. somethings. <sighs> I guess now would be a good time to talk about responses to these sorts of things. Because. Yeah. As well as, you know, a little bit more of the latest as far as what we know of what's yeah. going on in the ports. Cause when we did the, when we did the strike tober special, we did touch like get into the whole port of LA going 24 seven. Well, as folks know, and as we're going to get into in a minute here, the situation in the global port system, global, is pretty yeah. dire. <laughs> Just full stop. <laughs> like, let, let's be clear about this. There are wait times at the docks in Shenzhen and Shanghai. Granted, they're, you know, to the tune of one to two days, but there's still wait times to get these things out and no any, you know, a number of these things under this header, by the way. And normally these are ports that are just flinging ships out without any kind of wait. That's the way this is supposed to work. Yeah. Um, For reference, how much dwell time is like, how much dwell time do they really consider normal? I think it's something, something on the order of like eight to 12 hours, if that. Which is basically enough time to bring the ship in, load it up, turn it around, and let the crew go get, like, you know, plastered on the waterfront while this happens. Yeah. And instead, we're looking at unpredictable dwell times and dwell times in excess of, like, several days. Like, the reason Everywhere. Shanghai and Shenzhen can get away with you know, only ha 
only needing like double the usual time is they've got you know massive railheads they've got massive warehouse capacity and they're not shy about tearing down shit if it means that they can expand it further and a lot of a lot of the world's ports are not like that a lot of them are like near or at their maximum practical capacity like and china it also has to be said in this like broader import export relationship can really set the tempo in a way that the importers on the other end can't because that's one thing we have reported on is that there have been like instances of major manufacturers in china saying okay we're just slowing down production because we cannot keep up with the pace of orders right now because of how fugly the supply chain situation is so on the chinese end it is possible to actually ease off on the throttle yeah and there has been that has been happening in some cases so that's also worth pointing out um china does have an option that the United States and the European Union do not have. Right. Because they are net exporters and by a fairly wide margin. Like, yeah, they can, they can absolutely just ease off. Like if it comes down to it, they can just tell the factories to, okay, slow your roll. Maybe don't send us so many containers um yeah you've already got enough stuff in flight i'm sure it will keep (laughs) but you know to flip it to the other side i mean folks have definitely heard about the port of la you Mm -hmm. may have also heard about the florida ports council going don't worry we'll solve this yeah good luck there (laughs) (laughs) it's not like the ports in florida don't already have several day long traffic jams as does the port of Savannah, Georgia, and most of the other major port complexes on the East Coast. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, ships are being diverted to export terminals in Portland and in Georgia, which are usually terminals not slated for handling imports. Yeah. Which, like... that's going to be fun. <laughs> um, like, it is just an absolute fucking mess but this isn't just a question of before anyone starts going well this is like america being exceptionally dumb even the port of rotterdam in the netherlands which is generally when you read the trade papers and stuff about ports and you read the stuff about boat nerds and all that the port of rotterdam is generally considered to be like one of the most sophisticated advanced and well-constructed import export ports on the fucking planet um Uh, generally considered to be the gold standard because they are responsible for distributing goods bound for the entire continent of Europe. Yeah. And they've got a five-day backlog. Yeah, this this is supposed to be the most frictionless port on the planet, and their dwell time is five days. Like... That's that's where things are going right now. Like, it's gotten bad enough that basically the port of Portland has reopened for regular import traffic. We are 
we actually get a weekly ship now. Um, a couple, in fact. Um, and we did not used to. Um, like, a decade or more ago, like, you know, during the Great Recession, there was this big fallout where they canceled all those contracts and basically just sent it all to LA and, you know, told everyone, you know, go fuck yourself. And now, you know, we're actually getting import traffic for, for the region, which is, you know, that's kind of interesting. Um, but it's also, it's not enough. It's, it's relieving the shortages problems we're having here, but it's not a panacea. Um, Seattle um, and Tacoma are both overloaded. They, they're also at the usual like five days of dwell time figure. Um, the Florida one was really funny because they were like, oh, we only have like, you know, we have a dwell time of like only like 12 hours above the normal. Um, you know, to a couple of days and, you know, everything's fine, except that, like, most of that uh, traffic in Florida, because most of the ports are on the peninsula, um, they have to go through one rail line. And that rail line is shit. Um, it's not the CSX one that runs alongside I-95. That one works fine for what it is, but there's one in the interior that basically the company in question just does not bother to maintain. Um, it got bad enough that like they pulled Antrax service from it and basically <laughs> yeah, all of those so... Florida ports go through <laughs> that fucking rail line. And you know, the situation is not that much better in places like Savannah or New York and New Jersey like <laughs> this is a global problem and it's because this is a system that is not supposed to have friction anywhere yeah so the moment there was friction introduced everywhere it sort of is really coming unglued <laughs> like, and, like yeah this is there was even this one where like i mean if we're going to talk solutions for a minute i mean just to put one out there and this might be one that surprise like Blah, blah, blah. cutting all that so to put out s solutions for a minute mm -hmm. I would just like to humbly say that since all the lofts and all like a lot of these like gentrified condos in former warehouse districts are occupying space that was previously necessary for maintaining the supply chain system Yeah. in the pre-just-in-time world we have a problem of ports and facilities are overstuffed with material and we need somewhere to put it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these buildings that are now lofts, a lot of them are not consistently occupied in many places. There's quite a few that are held basically as like a fucking tax write off. Um, like San Francisco, for example, as of like 2015, this number's probably gotten worse since then. The city attorney's office estimated something like 18,000 units are just kept empty as like, you know, somebody's fucking investment asset or something. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to propose that we just 
kind of say, you know what, the supply chain crisis is genuinely threatening our ability to, you know, walk and chew gum as a society. So I am going to eminent domain the fuck out of these unoccupied real estate scam bullshit warehouses. I'm going to take advantage of that. They already have fucking wiring and plumbing. And all we have to do is just rip the guts out. And there you go. Yeah. Boom. Welcome to the municipal San Francisco warehouse district. You know what? I'll take it. (laughs) I mean, sure. I'm totally wiping my ass with property and real estate law and all that shit to do that. But it would mitigate the situation somewhat it would give some more slack space it would give some time and like aren't there some logistics people who are basically proposing you know kind of similar things no 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 couldn't possibly that there's no possible way anyone at sea level in the united states of america would contemplate profaning the gods of capital and market in such a horrific way like i mean i know someone somewhere is already writing an op-ed about how i need to be like gored on the horns of the bull before i'm torn apart by the claws of the bear for suggesting we disregard property rights (laughs) wait someone did yeah (laughs) really The CEO of Flexport, no less. Um, they're one of those companies that, you know, enables these sorts of frictionless flows of capital through supply chain intelligence. Like, this is this is their business. They they see a lot of this and they're freaking the fuck out. <laughs> and they're proposing things from you know the simple fixes like you know well i want to i want to point out Mm -hmm. like this guy ryan peterson is ceo of flexport like this starts from uh in in his tweet thread on october 27th yesterday i rented a boat and took the leader of one of flexport's partners in long beach on a three-hour tour of the port complex like that's already several steps closer to hey let's actually observe material reality than like 95 percent of hedge fund traders even approach in their entire fucking life um yeah yeah he's doing an empiricism and measuring material conditions his business is material conditions that's the thing he can't afford these illusions. And so he's more comfortable with ideas like, let's just grab a lot about, you know, a hundred ish miles away from, uh, from these city centers, um, near the uh, close to a cargo railhead. And let's, you know, instead of like, trucking all of this shit to, you know 1500 miles to a hub in dallas dump all the containers there just don't do any other kind of trucking just haul shit from the port to this depot and then start putting it on trains like 
Well, he even actually proposes doing this on government land. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. just like, oh, um, we need to like invest in like he's not proposing something like here we need to invest immediately he's like nope the private sector literally cannot do this yes he was he like, is literally saying we need public resources to fix the problem he was literally like we should commandeer as many aisle trucks as we can get for six months 180 days just to like, clear the is... backlog from this fucking port. <laughs> the straight up war mobilization shit. I mean, I'm good with it. Yeah. I mean, I'm I mean, I don't think he would necessarily in principle agree with my plow under the yuppie condos plan, but I I think he could be persuaded. I mean, if it's nothing a lot is easier, nothing is it's done a lot for a couple more port. quarters. I mean, he might go for it. <laughs> Eminent domain shit. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I, I sort of get the impression that he's focusing on what could be done, like, right now by government fiat. Because, like, what else? What else is there? What else is there? <laughs> I just, like, love his mantra of, you must overwhelm the bottleneck. <laughs> overwhelm the bottleneck (laughs) not quite as catchy as blood for the blood god but you know Mm -hmm. we we could do something with that um like you know just get these all these fucking (sighs) containers out of the port open up as much capacity for these containers as we can because right now what's happening is like containers are being like dumped in the middle of the street um there's trucks going through all sorts of neighborhoods that really they shouldn't be. Um, These are the words of a man who has looked at the full horror of the supply chain crisis square in the face and has very soberly concluded the only solution is a bigger hammer. Yes. And, you know... I can't say I disagree. I mean, you know, we're probably never going to see eye to eye on a lot of things, but frankly, it's... He's right. He's right. Like, this is... (laughs) This is what has to be done. Like, there is no private sector capacity to handle this, because if there were, don't you think this would have been done already? Like, you know, if the efficient market hypothesis was true, then... (laughs) This would be happening. There would have been temporary disruption, but Mm -hmm. somebody would have emerged to meet the demand. And it's not like there was a lack of fucking capital. Like, the Fed was basically, like, printing it at cost and hawking it off the back of trucks driving through random financial districts while also saying to wall street hey guess what we're just gonna like slash the reserve requirement down to like don't ask levels (laughs) so that you could really just go ham on the lead pipes while you're at it with the copper wiring pretty much it's not like there was a like a lack of this and it's not also like this isn't a 
Like, this isn't something that's coming out of nowhere. Like, we've been talking about this since, like, March 2020. Mm-hmm. Every fucking trade paper has been going, how the fuck do we deal with this totally unsurpassed crisis that is enveloping how we move shit from point A to point B. Like logistics trade journals have been like increasingly going from the direction of we are concerned to actually maybe the way that like finance minister in Germany went out with a pistol may not be such a bad idea. Um, We are not advocating suicide, but yeah i mean this is just this is where we're at like (sighs) this is these are the people who are actually like staring the cthulhu called the economy disintegrating in the face and some of them like our boy over at flexport are going right yeah okay uncle the market cannot handle this. Yeah. Now, of course, there are uh, some, shall we say, misconceptions flying around about how this stuff works. And it's like, you know, I personally haven't heard of people holding this, frankly, weird opinion, but. It is floating around the hell site, so I have to ask, is this a capital strike? No. No. Just full stop, no. Why? If anything, there is more capital awash in markets than ever at any point in history. The quantities of easy corporate credit that are sloshing around in the global economy is just re-fucking-diculous. This is not a situation like what you've seen with, like, say, Chile after Allende came into power where there was a genuine capital strike. Uh Where, like, capital exports, all kinds of stuff were deliberately withheld by Nixon's outright economic war against the government of Chile um that was a capital strike classic example what's going on right now and also to a lesser extent what's going on in the labor market no not really (laughs) because while it's true that there is no lack of people who could fill these jobs And you could argue, and I've seen this weird-ass argument on the Hell site, that it's actually a capital strike because capitalists are refusing to pay an appropriate wage. It's like, no, that's not what a capital strike is. What's happening is capitalism has gotten accustomed to functioning in this way and paying people like this and treating people like this. So when people say, no, actually, we're not going to do it, this isn't capital withholding investment. This is capitalism being told wait what we're not allowed to be shitty to people anymore (laughs) people won't stand for it like this is a system failing to adapt and the same thing is happening in supply chains especially because a lot of this work 
was skilled labor in these fields and nobody's really lining up to get their fucking twit cards or anything yeah and it's like I don't know it's like I I personally found that whole thing to be completely out there I don't I don't know why people thought that but it's like it it really feels like like there's just this weird strain of leftist thinking that falls into just outright conspiracist territory Mm -hmm. when it comes to analyzing market activity and business decisions and assumes a far greater degree of competence on the part of the capitalist class than you know the past year and a half has demonstrated actually exists yeah like they certainly made trillions of dollars but they also did a lot of really stupid fucked up shit along the way like I think the big COVID boom that the billionaires and oligarchs have enjoyed may for one reason or another end up being their last hurrah. Like they made their pile, but they really went mask off to do it. Yeah. It turns out there is no, it turns out that there may no longer be enough copper to sell to the scrap dealer. Like that's, that's kind of where things are standing and i mean yeah i don't know like this is why we've been kind of assuming for a while that economic depression and collapse is pretty much guaranteed barring heroic efforts on the part of washington dc and when i'm saying heroic i mean like passing the 10 trillion dollar infrastructure plan no questions asked heroic action yeah like barring something on that scale yeah the supply chain crisis is bleeding out any momentum that existed in the global economy Uh. (sighs) like it's at some point, this is going to reach a level where everything just goes into full cascade failure, and we may actually be at the opening stages of what that looks like. Yeah. Like, like this is not... that Because of just the way neoliberalism fucking works, this isn't going to be a... Like, I understand where the whole crumbles thesis comes from, but when you look at the way like economic collapse works under neoliberalism, this is not going to be like a deterioration like when things hit a tipping point they're gonna go really quick because there is no cushion or reserve capacity anywhere yeah i mean that's yeah i i agree like i i always kind of thought that thesis was weird because it's like when these things tend to go, they tend to go really fast. Um, like, some of you probably remember the great financial crisis, and, you know, that was sparked over, like, <laughs> bad subprime loans. Like, you know, one, 
one minor sector of the banking economy melting down and taking a lot of shit with it. Because, you know, everyone has to play in the casino now. And it's yeah. like, now what we've, what we've learned is that these things are sudden and they're catastrophic. And, you know, they only don't seem that way because in the past there was this reserve, there was this slack that every system depends upon to be resilient. And we have systematically stripped it out while, you know, capital has, like, reified itself into, like, you know, scam economy stuff. Like... Yeah. (laughs) So this is, you know, hang on to your hats time, everybody. Because when it comes, it's gonna lurch real quick. I'm like firmly putting my marker down at this point on first quarter next year is when this is going to kick off. Yeah. Because the holiday numbers will not be where they need to be. Actual profits in the face of supply chain shit from the summer reopening are going to be down. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to be in a position to have made up for losing an entire year. Yeah. And that's when we're going to start to see some of the zombies drop. Like, not just a year, more like five, six quarters? More? Yeah. Like, how much recovery has there really been? How much of this is just treading water? Thanks to all these, you know, heroic measures. Yep. That's that's the part I think that should scare you. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> this has been the Chop Shop Supply Chain Crisis Special. Mm-hmm. Reading this shit so you all don't have to. <sighs> Alright. Bye everyone. Good luck out there. <laughs>